You are now listening to the September 18th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have The Seven Signs, A Sermon, and The God of Abraham. First, let's begin with The Seven Signs. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with The Seven Signs. Today, we will continue our story about the sign of Lazarus from last week. This is Jesus' seventh sign that involves the death and resurrection of Lazarus as recorded in John chapter 11. This sign about Lazarus is different from the other signs Jesus showed earlier. All the other signs were given to his disciples or those that followed him. The general Jewish populace did not see these signs. They only heard about them. In contrast, this sign involving Lazarus was given to all to witness, including the Jews that came to attend Lazarus' funeral and had no interest in the truth about Jesus. When the miracle was performed, there were those that believed in Jesus, but there were also those that did not believe in him. We shared that the reason Jesus showed this seventh sign to all, including those that did not believe in him, had something to do with the sign of Jonah. To those people that demanded to see the signs from heaven, Jesus said he had only the sign of Jonah to show to them. Jonah died after he was swallowed by the big fish. Then he was resurrected after three days. That is the sign of Jonah. For such reasons, Jesus did not go to Lazarus immediately to heal him when Mary and Martha compelled him to come up and help their brother. Rather, he stayed two extra days. Some people wondered why Jesus did not hasten his coming, but Jesus was waiting for the appointed time of three days after Lazarus' death. And when the appointed time came, Jesus went to his disciples to Bethany, where Lazarus was laid to rest by then. He met Lazarus' sisters Martha and Maria there. When they met Jesus, they said the same thing to Jesus. First, Martha told Jesus in John chapter 11, verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Maria also says the same thing in John chapter 11, verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Let us think about what Martha and Maria said a bit more. These two sisters had faith in Jesus. They believed Jesus could have healed their sick brother. They believed that Jesus could have prevented Lazarus from dying. That was a great faith. They had faith in Jesus that he was someone that could overcome any problems no matter how difficult they might be. Unfortunately, though, that was the extent of their faith. Their faith went as far as believing Jesus could heal the sick and perform miracles such as feeding a large group of people and helping someone born blind to see. In other words, the faith people had toward Jesus at the time was limited to believing that Jesus was somebody that could do anything 
while the person was still alive. What they did not know was that Jesus was someone that had the power reaching beyond death. They simply did not know this. That is why Martha and Maria thought their brother would have lived had Jesus came while Lazarus was still alive. They thought it was too late now, and they were sad. The sentiment was also shared by others. People thought nothing could be done now for Lazarus. Seeing Jesus weeping with Martha and Maria, the Jews attending the funeral uttered in dismay, even though he could open the eyes of the blind, he could not keep this man from dying. However, we know Jesus wept because of their lack of faith. According to a cultural belief at the time, the Jews thought a person's soul stayed over his dead body for three days before going down to Sheol. So they thought that perhaps there was a chance for a dead person to come to life during those three days. However, it was all done and over now since it had already been three days since his death. Actually, Jesus had performed several miracles of resurrecting people from death before Lazarus. He resurrected a 12-year-old daughter of Jairus, a synagogue official, and resurrected the son of a widow in the city of Nain. In these instances, these people were brought back to life on the same day. Such miracles conformed with the Jewish cultural belief. However, the miracle involving Lazarus was different. Jesus raised Lazarus on the fourth day of his death, a full three days after his death. It was clearly outside of the cultural belief system of the Jews at the time. Lazarus had been dead for four days. His body was decaying at that point, and there was a stench. Yet Jesus stood in front of Lazarus's tomb and told people to remove the stone and prayed to God. He prayed as appears in John chapter 11, the latter part of verse 41 and verse 42. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. With these words, Jesus was trying to convey to us that the purpose of the miracle that he was about to perform was to help people in him, for them to believe Jesus was the one whom God sent. Jesus clarified that resurrecting the dead belongs to God's sovereignty who rules over life. That means only someone that is appointed by God could bring a dead person back to life. Therefore, Jesus had to have been sent by God. Further, Jesus was revealing who he truly is through this miracle. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? These are verses 25 and 26 from chapter 11. That is right. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus proclaimed that he has the power to bring people from death and demonstrated it by resurrecting Lazarus after three days of his death. He also said that he himself is the resurrection and the life. He even showed that he is the Son of God who rules over life and death 
by showing the sign of Jonah, which he had promised to show them. John chapter 11, verse 45, says many of the Jews saw what Jesus did and came to believe in him. But verse 46 says some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. One of two things happen when we see the signs of Jesus. We either come to believe in Jesus or we deny him. Verse 53 says the people who denied him planned together to kill Jesus from that day on. It says in verse 48 that the reason was because they were afraid that the Romans would come and take away both their place and their nation. They planned to kill Jesus, who was the beginning of life. Why? Ironically, in their own convoluted thinking, it was to save their own lives because they did not recognize Jesus for who he is, the one that gives life. Those who have faith in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, attain the resurrected body and eternal life, but those who do not believe in him will die in their own sins. May all of us have the grace of believing in Jesus. With that as our prayer, we conclude today's episode the signs of Jesus. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Miter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is In the World, Not of the World. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. Where are Christians to draw the line with regard to participating in the world? Because the world has a lot to offer, does it not? It has a lot to offer. So where are we to draw the line? That's kind of an important question. As a matter of fact, I would venture to guess this is probably one of the most often asked questions by you and me, whether we know it or not. We probably ask this more than we know in our lives every day. So for example, on what level should I participate in the things of this world? Right? There's a lot the world has to offer. On what level should I even enjoy the things of this world? Or am I allowed to enjoy the things of this world? When should I cooperate? And when should I separate with the things that the world is doing? Listen, if our goal is to remain faithful to the Lord, this is kind of an important question. Wouldn't you agree? So this is what we're going to tackle. Now, whether you know it or not, you come from a very awesome line of brothers and sisters in Christ down through church history. If you've never had an opportunity to study church history, do it. It's amazing. It is amazing what past generations did in their service to the Lord. But in order to answer this question, previous generations tackled it in different ways. So for example, early in church history, and even up to this day, some Christians have chosen to deal with this question of where do we draw the line with participating in the world by adopting what's called a monastic lifestyle, becoming a monk or a nun, literally living in the wilderness or joining a monastery where we essentially kind of check out. This is what brother, our brothers and sisters in Christ have done down through church history. They were getting off the grid. We think this is a new term, right? You've heard this term getting off the grid. The grid has always existed. It's just an electronic form now right? But it has always existed. And so early Christians said, well, the way we're going to deal with this issue of where, to, where the line is with participating in the world is we're just going to get off the grid. We're going to check into a monastery, live in the wilderness, and kind of isolate ourselves from the world. Other Christians did even more extreme things like asceticism. And if you've never heard this term, it's simply abstinence from earthly pleasures. It is, hey, I'm just not, I'm not only going to check out, I'm going to deny myself any pleasure whatsoever or most pleasure that the world has to offer. And some of these guys took it to extreme lengths. Some of them fasted endlessly, allowing themselves to eat only things like grass. Does that sound good? Listen, you want to know, but that's kind of hard for us to understand. But listen, do you want to know how serious our brothers and sisters in Christ were in their desire to remain pure from the world, that serious. So listen, our brothers and sisters in previous generations were all in when it came to staying pure from the world. Now this begs the question, is this the type of life that you and I should be living now? Because I was stuffing my face with donuts in between the service. <laughs> and yeah, we all were. Listen, the Bible does say things like this. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I don't know about you. I don't want to be an enemy of God. Do you? No way. So where is the line? How in the world are we to be in the world, but not of the world when it comes to all that the world is doing, all the activities, everything that's happening in the world, where in the world do we draw the line? 
Maybe getting off the grid is the way to go. Adopting a monastic lifestyle is the way to go, or an extremely ascetic lifestyle is the way to go. Isolating ourselves and denying ourselves. But let's be honest for one moment. If that is where Christians are to draw the line with regard to being in the world, but not of the world, then everyone in this room and everyone watching online has a lot of work to do. Amen. We've got a lot of work to do. I don't see very many monks in this room right now (laughs) or nuns. You want some good news? Here's some great news. This is not where Christians are to draw the line. Nowhere in the Bible are Christians told to get off the grid, to adopt a monastic lifestyle or an ascetic lifestyle as a means of remaining pure from the world. Not everything the world is doing is necessarily evil. And not all physical pleasure is wrong. As a matter of fact, I got really good news for you. The Bible says that God has given us everything for our enjoyment. Let me prove it to you. 1 Timothy 6.17. This is Paul warning Timothy in telling them to speak to the rich people. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to to enjoy. To enjoy. That's really, really good news. God wants us to enjoy the world that he has created, which means there is nothing wrong with Christians enjoying food and friends or having a good laugh or being entertained or enjoying music or the arts or sports. That's right. I may have got a pedicure, but I still love sports. Got my man card still. As a matter of fact, this is very, very important. You want a sure sign that you are around someone that doesn't properly know where to draw the line with regard to participating with the world? A sure sign that you are around somebody who doesn't know where to draw the line is that such people will try to restrict you from such activities. Again, this is Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy. Look at what he says. It's fascinating. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. You want to know what the teaching of demons and false spirits looks like? Here's what it looks like. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, here it is. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Amen. So the next time you're around anyone who says you can't have that, That's a sure sign that they don't necessarily know where to draw the line. So being in the world, but not of the world, doesn't mean that we can't enjoy the world that God has given us or deny that we have to, we don't have to deny or suppress the natural desires that we all have for things like food or adventure or fellowship or intimacy or a good laugh. There's nothing wrong with those things. We don't need to become monks and nuns. Amen. No offense, but some of you would make horrible monks. I'd be one of them. (laughs) You don't need to feel guilty. This is important. And this is very, very important. You do not need to feel guilty for enjoying all that God has made and all the good activities that come along with it. He's given us bodies 
to practice athletics. He's given us creative minds so that we can enjoy the arts, right, and paint, and that we can listen to wonderful music. These are things that God has given to us, and there's nothing wrong with enjoying those things. Don't feel guilty ever about doing that. But here's the question. Does that mean then there are no lines to draw with participating in the world and the things that the world has to offer? Not necessarily. Because Christians are warned that there is an aspect of the world we need to avoid. And if we can get this down, we will draw perfect lines every time. And so, church, it's my honor, and those that are online, it is my honor to take us to the Word of God today. We will be in 1 John. I know it says John. It's actually supposed to be 1 John 2.15 through 17. So, church, hear the Word of God this morning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Amen. Again, church, I present to you the word of God this morning. Now, this is very, very important. One of the things you have to understand when reading the Bible is that words often have more than one meaning. And a great example of this is with the word world. The Bible uses the word world in at least three different ways. So let me draw your attention to them really quickly. First, the world can refer to the actual physical creation that God has made. The God who has made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So God created the stars. He created the planets. He created all of it. And it's referred to as the world. The second way the Bible uses the word world is by referring to the inhabitants of the world. Let me give you an example. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world. It meant the, he's meaning the people of the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. Now, the third way the Bible uses the word world is when referring to, and this is the key, is when referring to the godless, corrupt spiritual realm ruled over by Satan himself. So Ephesians 2, for example, says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. First John 519, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So to put it in slightly different terms, here it is. The world can either mean the physical creation, the people of this world, or it can refer to the wicked set of beliefs, ideologies, priorities, and practices that Satan promotes as the father of lies. Okay? And it is this world that Christians are not to fall in love with. So our brothers and sisters in the past generations, they went to monasticism and asceticism because they thought we can't enjoy the created world that God has made. And we can't enjoy the people of this world. But that's where I think they drew the line too hard. Right? Because we can enjoy creation and the good activities that come with it. And we can enjoy the people of this world, right? Although, like I said, we don't want to yoke ourselves together with unbelievers, so we have to be careful in our relationships. But this we can enjoy. These two, this world, the physical creation and all that comes with it, and the people of this world, it's this world over here 
that we are to avoid. The wicked set of beliefs, ideologies, priorities, and practices that Satan promotes as the father of lies. And that world is seductive. It is seductive beyond your wild imagination. And let me prove it to you. In 2 Timothy, Paul mentions a young man by the name of Demas. And he says, do your best to come to me soon for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He fell in love with this world over here. The wicked set of beliefs, ideologies, priorities, and practices promoted by the father of lies, Satan himself. And it is a seductive world. If you look back at our passage, there's some clues to what John was talking about. Listen, he says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. It's from this world over here, right? We can enjoy the creation that God has given us and everything that is in it and the food and the friends and the fellowship and the sports and the pedicures. That'll probably be no, and Amy, Amy's, the Amy that did my feet was amazing. Christian, obviously she's come to church here. Amazing, amazing lady, but I don't know that I'll ever get another pedicure again. (laughs) By the way, I learned some, I shouldn't say this, forget it. I learned stuff about the feet. I I won't bring it up here. So I I don't even know why. For John, the world consists of those fleshly carnal desires that dominate modern day culture. As a matter of fact, they don't just dominate modern day culture. They dominate culture from the the inception of sin coming into the world. What are we talking about? Things like love of self, love of possessions and wealth, our love and our seemingly unquenchable lust for luxury, comfort, and security. And those prideful desires whereby we seek glory for ourselves and we find ourselves to be so amazingly wise in our own eyes. These are the types of things that represent the world and the things of this world, which we are not to fall in love with. Peter describes such desires as the passions of the flesh and made it abundantly clear where to draw the line. Do you want to know where to draw the line, guys? Here's where you draw the line right here. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. That's where you draw the line right there. Crystal clear. Can you enjoy creation and all the good activities and things that God has given you? Yes. That's where the monastics, I think, got it wrong. Can you enjoy people, friends, and fellowship and laughter? Yes. It's this world over here. You abstain from it. You don't feed it. You don't flirt with it. You abstain from it. That's where the line is. And we never cross it. Ever. In like manner, the apostle Paul said this. And by the way, that says 1 Timothy 6, 9. I don't know why it says that. It's actually Romans 13, 14. I'm telling you, when I put these things in a PowerPoint and we put them on the computer, the computer changes them. Satan is in that computer back there. Because I don't make mistakes like this. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make what? No provision, none whatsoever for the flesh to gratify its desires. Where do you draw the line? You abstain. You make no, absolutely no provision for it. You don't flirt with it. You don't feed it. You don't give it attention. That's where the line is. And it is to be a crystal clear line. So with all that being said, we now have the answer to what we are looking for. And I didn't make a slide for this, but here it is. When it comes to being in the world, but not of the world, Christians are free to enjoy the world that God has made and everything and everyone in it while drawing a clear line with regard to loving the wicked beliefs, ideologies, priorities, and practices of this present age, of this present world. 
We are not to, listen, not only do we, are we not to not, we're, we're not to fall in love with these things. We are actually, according to the Bible, to, to wage war against it. Not only do we not flirt with it or feed it or look at it or get close to it, get really close to that line. So, oh, I wonder how, you know, if you're asking the question, how close do I need to get to the line before I cross it? You're asking the wrong question. The question you should be asking is what weapons should I be bringing to fight against this world? You are at war with it. We don't flirt with it. We don't feed it. We don't see how close we can get to it before we cross it. We are at war with it. I'm not making this up. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. You understand this world over here is going to offer you time and time again, different ideas, different knowledge, different philosophies, different things. They're going to present them to you sometimes a hundred times a day. Your job is to take everything, every single one of those ideas and make them obedient to Christ. Amen. It will be relentless in doing that. The great danger for those of us who are believers is that we lose sight of the fact that we are in a war with that world. You're not in a war necessarily with enjoying the good things that God has created or the people that God has put in your life, but you're at war with this world. You are at war with this world. We must stay alert, stay awake, stay focused. Anything the world sets before us, we must take it captive. Anything, anything, by the way, you want a great activity that you can do with your children, your grandchildren, grandchildren, and you can do it until the day you die. As you watch TV, or as you watch what this world over here, however this world gets their ideas to you, whether it's through the internet or TV or whatever, one great way to do this is as you're watching TV, for example, with your kids or your grandkids, when you watch a commercial, simply ask, what is the world offering us in that commercial? And what you're going to train them to do from a very young age is take everything that the world is presenting to them and making it obedient to Christ. You train them as they watch each and every commercial. Now, not every commercial that's going to be presented is going to be a bad thing, but there's going to be some commercials that are clearly worldly, promoting worldly values, ideologies, and principles. And what you want to do is pause and say, what is the world presenting to us? Have your children, your grandchildren identify that and then make it obedient to Christ. And think about raising up a generation of young children that are able to identify that's from the world. It's going to be made obedient to Christ. Amen. It's as simple as that. They don't even have to be your kids. Wherever you are with kids, if you see the world presenting them with something, do this little exercise. Listen, folks, we are fighting to destroy strongholds, arguments, and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. That world is going to flood your life and my life with arguments and ideas and opinions and philosophies that are going to oppose Christ in every way. Folks, this spiritual war can be trickier than we think because we are not fighting with physical weapons like guns, tanks, and bombs. If we would, it would be easy we are fighting a spiritual war against a spiritual enemy using spiritual weapons. Weapons like the word of God, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, having our feet fitted with the gospel of peace and not wax, paraffin wax, as you get a pedicure. This boy's feet are fitted with the gospel of peace. 
It can be so easy for those of us who are believers to lose our focus. And you know what happens when we lose our focus? When we lose our focus, we fall in love. That's what happens. We lose our focus and pretty soon we're at the line. And we're having a great conversation because we're not focused and they're presenting ideas there. It's a give and take. And before we know it, we've crossed the line and guess where we are. We're in the, that part of the world we should not be in. We're in that part of the world that we should not be in. And folks, when that happens, the damage can be significant. Let me give you just one good example of what I'm talking about. One area that concerns me greatly is that the church in particular has fallen in love with the world's view of success. So the world over here is throwing out a million different ideas. One of them is what is true success, right? Guess who's bit that hook harder than anyone else? The church in America. As a result, we have come to judge success by using worldly metrics instead of biblical metrics. Not surprisingly, much of the time, the church has come to value being popular over being pure, being relevant over being reverent. Listen, I don't care if you're a visitor here, wherever, whatever church you attend, if you're online, whatever church you attend, you demand and expect that they follow the Bible and biblical metrics as, as to what is successful. Don't let anyone get caught up in what the world is offering on that front. It's bad for the church. It's bad business for the church. You want me to prove it? The church at Laodicea, first century, it was already happening in the first century. You say, Jesus talking to this church, you say, I'm rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. It almost sounds like the church in the United States. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Listen, folks, if the church doesn't know where to draw the line with regard to the world and the things of this world, not only is the church in huge trouble, this world is in huge trouble. Listen. As the world continues to aggressively promote more and more extreme, radical, unbiblical views of marriage, sexuality, gender, ethnicity, and yes, even justice, you understand that the world is being flooded right now. This world is trying to flood your life, my life, with all sorts of crazy ideas on marriage. Let's redefine marriage on sexuality, on gender. How many genders are there? There's no longer two. There's a hundred. Ethnicity and justice. Listen, folks, the church better know where to draw the line. Because if we don't know where to draw the line, who does? Those in Washington and those in Hollywood have no clue where to draw the line. Now, yes, there are some good politicians and there, there are a few and far between that are towing the line. Pray for them. And there are those in Hollywood that are trying to tow the line. I know there's good Christians there that are trying to, to do it there as well. Pray for them. But if you're looking to politicians or actors to help you figure out where to draw the line, you are looking at the wrong people. And by the way, you don't even want to look at pastors because pastors are fallible men that can get it wrong. You look where? To the word of God. This is your source of authority. This tells us where the lines are. Amen? It's sola scriptura. The Bible alone. This is one of the, the hallmarks of the Protestant Reformation. Luther said, we don't look to the Pope. We don't look to traditions. We don't even look to ourselves. We look to the word of God and we submit to what it says. Sola Scriptura. The word of God alone is our final source of authority. Let me put it another way. As the world continues to blur the lines, the church better know good and well where to draw the line. Because folks, if we don't, who does? Listen. If you, as head of your home or uh, someone in your own family, if you don't know where to draw the lines, Who's going to know? 
That's why I said one of the best exercises you can do with your family, and they don't even have to be, if your kids can be growing, you can still do it. As you're watching something, just simply stop and say, what is the world offering us in this moment? Let's take it and make it captive and obedient to Christ. Amen? Let's do it. Train yourselves. Become fluent in doing this. If ever there was a time for the church to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, folks, it is now. But that will not happen if believers are thinking like the world, acting like the world, in love with the world, flirting with the world, feeding the world, walking up to the line and wondering how close we can get to it before we cross it. No, we need to be picking up our weapons of warfare and fighting against this world, taking everything that it's offering us and making it obedient to Christ on the spot. Amen? I finish with this passage. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does God's grace do? It trains us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Look at what verse 12 says, by the way. Go back. Let's go back. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Folks, in a world that is out of control, crooked, and ungodly, Christians are to be self-controlled, upright, and utterly holy. And we must do this Never losing sight of the price that was paid so that we could do this. You have been made God's own possession, and it came at a great price to him. He sent his one and only son into the world to die for the sins of men, that whoever would believe on him would have everlasting life. Every spiritual blessing God could give to you, he did give to you at the expense of his son on the cross. You have been set apart as a people as of his own possession. Let's act like it. Let's be bold and courageous in this generation. Amen? We know where to draw the line. The question is, will we draw it? Will we draw it? I'll give our brothers and sisters in previous generations, they may not have always drawn the line in the right place, but at least they were trying to draw it with courage. Will we draw it with courage in this generation? One of my favorite theologians, Paul Washer, said this, we must not adopt the world's view and then tweak it to make it Christian. Man, that's happening in the church, right? Let's just take critical race theory and twist it and make it Christian. Let's just take this idea of gender and let's just twist it and try and make it Christian. Let's just take this idea of maybe we should redefine marriage and let's put a Christian twist on it. No, thank you. No. We must draw a line in the sand and stand firm in the radical teachings of Christ and his gospel. You do understand that when you signed up to follow Christ, you were standing, you, you were signing up to follow I shouldn't even say, call it radical teaching. You were signing up to follow the most radical man in the history of the world. You understand that? It takes courage and fortitude to follow him. It takes sacrifice and conviction to follow him. The question is, will we do it in this generation? Our brothers and sisters in previous generations laid down their lives doing it. Didn't always draw the line in the right place, but at least they had a conviction to draw that line. We must preach the truth and be examples of the truth we preach. Drawing firm lines, guys, isn't easy. 
Don't feel guilty about enjoying this creation and all that God has made or the people that God has put in your life. Enjoy them, that God has given you these things to enjoy. Enjoy them to the fullest and rejoice. You don't have to become a monk in order to please God. As a matter of fact, enjoy the good things. And if you're ever around somebody that's telling you to deny these good things, they don't know where to draw the line. But when it comes to the principles and practices and ideologies and philosophies of this world, you abstain. You make no provision. You draw the line hard and fast. You go over here, you pick up your weapons, and you wage war against that. Amen? That's, what, that's where the line is. That is where the line is to be. So again, when it comes to being in the world but not of the world, Christians are free to enjoy the world that God has made, all the good activities therein, and the people thereof, while drawing a clear line with regard to loving the wicked beliefs, ideologies, priorities, and practices of this present age. That's it, folks. So if I may be so bold to finish, is there an area where you, you and I, this is personal, need to draw a firm line regarding the beliefs, ideologies, priorities, and practices of this present world. Are you somebody that has been walking up to the line going, I wonder how close I can get before I cross it. If this is you, if you've been flirting with or feeding with, feeding this world and getting as close as you can to it, today's the day to say, done. I'm walking away. I'm not going to cross that line. Amen? Amen? Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you. Lord, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And Father, that is a tricky line, God, to sometimes draw and stand firm on that line. But God, I pray that we have more clarity today than we did before we came in today. Give us courage, God, to be bold in our families. Help us and train us, God, to recognize what this world is offering to us. And God, let us take everything and make it obedient and captive to Christ. In the quietness of your heart right now, just spend a, time, a moment in private prayer, whether you're in person or online, and ask, say, God, is there an area where I've been flirting with the world or walking up to that line? And maybe it's not you. Maybe it's somebody you know. Pray for them. Pray for yourself if you have to, but just spend a moment in private prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you and we pray these things in your son's name, the name of Jesus, our savior. And everybody said, amen. Now, normally I would dismiss you real quick, but here's the deal. You want to know one of the greatest Bible verses in all the Bible? It's when Jesus declared all foods clean, which means you're allowed to eat bacon. Okay. Which you can cook on the skillet that you're going to get at the youth table on the way out. God bless you. You guys have a great day. We'll see you out on the plaza.
The voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 602- 866-8999 The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone. My name is Terry from The God of Abraham. Today we'll look into Genesis chapter 18 verses 1 through 8. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. 
So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seeds of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. Then he brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. We'll read up to here and reflect for a moment. In chapter 17, the previous chapter, we said God appeared to Abraham after 23 to 24 years. However, this time, God appeared again in a very short span of time. It says God appeared to Abraham in the great trees of Mamre. If we read the Bible in a hurry, we may misunderstand this verse. There are some who say Abraham occasionally meditated upon God in the trees of Mamre and God appeared to him just as Nathaniel meditated upon God's word under a fig tree in the book of John. However, if we read this part carefully, it doesn't imply that Abraham was meditating upon God. Abraham wasn't sitting under the trees of Mamre, but he was sitting at the entrance to his tent. Therefore, we can know the information of where Abraham was living at this time. It will be good for us to look at the significance of the place where the trees of Mamre are located. As we have mentioned before, the trees of Mamre was a place where the Canaanites served their local God at that time. Therefore, God, who is the true God, appeared in the center of where people served a god of idols. In the place where false gods were worshipped, the true God appeared. We have something to learn from Abraham here. Where is Abraham sitting now? He is sitting at the entrance to his tent. Abraham is living in the land of Canaan, which God promised to give. However, he was not living in a house that was built. He was still living in a tent. He didn't settle there, but lived like a wanderer. Abraham lived in a tent until he died. This is how we, who are God's people, should live here on earth. We should live as wanderers who will leave one day. The Bible is describing this scene in great detail. It tells us the exact location, what Abraham is doing, and the time which was the heat of the day. It is described very realistically. When Abraham was sitting at the entrance of the tent, three people were standing across him. It says when he saw them, he hurried to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Abraham recognized who they were. Then he called them, My Lord. We don't know if they looked unusual, but Abraham knew who they were. Then Abraham asked these three people to allow him to serve them and prepared food. Abraham had many servants, but he personally took a choice tender calf among the herd. The calf was prepared and served before the Lord. Let's read verses 9-15. through 15. Where is your wife Sarah? they asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. 
but he said, Yes, you did laugh. God is confirming once again that Sarah will have a son. God's promise, which was made 25 years ago, is being revealed in detail after a very long period of time has passed. Our spiritual journey is the same way. When we first began our life of faith, everything seemed faint and unspecific. However, over time, the substance of salvation is being revealed little by little and becoming concrete as we experience the Lord and as we listen to His voice through the Bible. If we are in fellowship with the Lord, this must happen. I hope this is continually happening within us. Sarah heard God's promise in detail, but she thought about her circumstance and thought God couldn't fulfill His promise. Therefore, only Almighty God can do this. We mentioned this briefly last time, but we must be happy when we're faced with a situation where we can't do anything more with our own ability. It's because this is the best time when God's power is shown. This is the best time to experience God. Therefore, we must be happy. Through this, we are able to trust God more. Therefore, when we're in a situation where we can't do anything, I hope we won't be afraid. Sarah couldn't believe God's word and she laughed. God said, why did you laugh? And Sarah lied by saying she didn't laugh. However, God corrected her and said she laughed. Amazingly, God didn't rebuke or punish Sarah or cancel the promise. God didn't say, You don't believe me? Then I won't give you a child. Their lack of faith was not a condition for God to act upon the promise. God is keeping the promise because God made the promise with Himself. The conversation ended and the three people who appeared to Abraham left the place. We don't have time to read the entire chapter, so I'll summarize the key points. In verse 16, it says the three people left the place and headed toward Sodom, and Abraham sent them off. In verse 17, God says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Then in verses 18 through 19, he tells the reason why he won't hide it. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. God doesn't hide it from Abraham because Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. If we think about it, we may think God said this because he had a very close relationship with Abraham. However, the next verse says, For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. We should think about it this way. Right now, God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. If so, then the great nation that will come from Abraham and all nations on earth who will be blessed through him must keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Sodom and Gomorrah did not do this, so they will be destroyed. It seems like God is saying, Abraham, and my people who will come through you, if you are in sin, that sin will lead you to death and destruction. Therefore, keep my way by doing what is right 
and just. Jude chapter 1 verse 7 says, In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah became an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. God made this known to Abraham so Abraham could make this known to his descendants. Verses 20-21 says, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. This is God's nature. God already heard the outcry and knows everything. But before he brings judgment, he will look at the situation once again for the final time to confirm. Therefore, God doesn't randomly bring judgment, but he is patient and prudent. In verse 22, two people are heading towards Sodom, and only Abraham remained, standing before God. Then, the well-known conversation between God and Abraham appears. Abraham makes a request to God, asking if God would not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if there were ten righteous people in the city. I will only tell you the important point. First, Abraham is not saying an intercessory prayer for Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is not opposed to Sodom and Gomorrah receiving judgment. He is worried about the righteous perishing along with the wicked. Therefore, he says a just God would not do that. When Abraham made the request, he was worried about the safety of his nephew Lot and his family. Therefore, Abraham asked God if he would not destroy the city if 50 righteous people were found. However, after some thought, Abraham didn't think there were 50 righteous people. If the sins of the people were heard from heaven, then Abraham, who lived on earth, would surely know about it. Therefore, it didn't seem like there would be 50 righteous people. Therefore, he decreased the number by 5, then another 5, then 10, and it went on and on until he came to 10 righteous people. In Abraham's thought, it didn't seem like there would be more than 10 righteous people. That is how prevalent sin was in that land. Next time, we'll look into chapter 19 and see why Abraham thought there would be 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Today, I would like to make something very clear. Abraham didn't say an intercessory prayer for Sodom and Gomorrah. If it was an intercessory prayer, Abraham's prayer would not have been conveyed to God. The prayer of Abraham, who was the source of blessing, would have been denied by God. Therefore, we must clearly understand Abraham's prayer. He prayed for the righteous. He especially prayed for his nephew Lot, and God answered his prayer. Today, in Genesis chapter 18, we looked at how God told Abraham about the work he would do. Next week, we'll look at the frightening destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It would be good for you to read it in advance before listening to the program. I hope you will be molded by God during this week. I'll see you next time. Goodbye.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.